Hey, this is Ronnie Nunn, and thank you for listening to the Crown Reps podcast, Serve the Game. The Crown Refs Podcast is the audio experience for basketball officials brought to you by Neat Tucks, the best way to keep your shirt or uniform tucked. As we continue to grow for episode number 40, we feature former NBA referee Ronnie Nunn. Ronnie also used to be the NBA's director of officials, and we had a long conversation that I will break up into two parts. This is Ronnie Nunn University. He goes in-depth on his time as a player, then a coach, then a teacher, and a ref then a director of officials, then having a TV show to continuously developing other officials. And that's why the None Better Refs Camp provides a tremendous instructional camp experience. We're going to talk all about Ronnie's camp. I hope you enjoy the podcast. If you do, please share it with someone that also officiates and do me a favor. Have a great day. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honor to welcome a true legend to the Crown Refs Podcast. He is a former 19-year NBA official who also served as the NBA's director of officials for five years and was the host of NBA TV's Making the Call, which I loved, by the way. Please welcome the great Ronnie Nunn. How are you, sir? I'm fine. The great part, I don't know, Paul, but thank you very much. <laughs> oh, it's an absolute honor to have you on. Appreciate you reaching out. I'm glad we connected. 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 I want to give you a couple stats on yourself. Are you ready? I'm ready. You refereed 1,134 NBA regular season games, 73 playoff games, four NBA finals, and the 1996 All-Star game, which I think MJ won MVP. Anything I missed? <laughs> well, no. I, um, I, I refereed the junior varsity game in 1989 that included refereeing all the all-time old-timer greats, which I thought was great to referee Oscar Robertson and people of that ilk. So uh, that was my first opportunity. We did it that way at that time uh, before they had the rookie all-star game. So Mm -hmm. that was a treat for me in my career. And the the only thing I miss out on is uh, the continued finals opportunities of games to do because I got injured and uh, couldn't continue my career. But uh, I, I transitioned almost seamlessly and thankfully to becoming director of officials when that injury occurred at the end of my 2003 season. So there's there's good and bad in everything, and you keep. So uh, I'm thankful for continued service to the NBA. In this section, Ronnie talks about the injury that ended his 14-year career and the opportunity that allowed him to get back to his teaching and coaching roots as an educator, but this time on the NBA level. My knee just, uh, I always had a knee problem from probably 11 years old, playing baseball, sliding into second. And I probably injured some cartilage. Of course, when the x-ray was there, it didn't show cartilage. And I've always had a weak left knee. I never thought it was going to catch up to me in, in, in officiating, obviously, uh, you know, as you get older. Uh, but it did. It caught up to me at 53 years old, and I literally could not run anymore. So uh, that was it. And it was kind of frightening because I was at the top of my game. You know, it takes you into your 50s when you really, really get to know this game, especially when you thought when you started at 34 years old. So uh, I, I really felt so good about it. I had the game in the palm of my hand, as they say, and I was enjoying it, at, at, you know, the most I could ever enjoy it, except when that happened. And uh, the good news again was that 
the, the, the NBA was interested in having me lead uh, our guys. And I thought that was quite uh, humbling and honorable at the same time. Absolutely. So you retired in 03. And which year did you become the director? Uh, the season of 03-04. So I, I missed the 03 uh, later playoffs like the conference finals because I couldn't continue running. And then, of course, that summer, uh, I became the director of officials in July, July 15th, actually. And, uh, and that's when it started as we welcomed the officials to the September preseason camp in 03 for the 03-04 season. Gotcha. Could you describe like some of the emotions that you might have had, you know, having a long, uh, successful NBA career and then to have it end on injury? Well, um, I think the, the emotion most prominent was that when you are feeling well as an athlete and, and you're really doing well as an official, which involves athletics as well, and then something cuts you off like that, it, it stunts it's, it stuns you deeply because you're you're always pursuing uh, another level of accomplishment and another level of ability. So when that happened, I knew I was on the, the a time period where I was turning the corner uh, in my officiating on the floor experiences, and I knew I was getting better and better. And uh, and when that happened, it really stunt me and and shocked me. And by the way, the same thing happened in my base in my basketball career. Uh, I had done very well. Uh, in international basketball and it was hitting camps, NBA camps much better. And I had an illness in a foreign country that really took me out and that stunt me as well. And, uh, and it, it took me aback even more than the other. Uh, so I've been hit twice by serious injury, uh, one internal with my organs and the other, of course, was with my knee. And as a result with my knee, I finally later on had a knee replacement. And uh, as they say, if you get a knee replacement, when you get it, you say to yourself, why didn't I get it sooner? The only problem is they don't have a knee replacement yet where you can go back in a season or at the end of a season for the next season again. So that that one hasn't come up yet. At Crown Reps, um, you know, we're a real diverse community of officials from all over the world, all different levels girls basketball to the NBA, junior varsity to the G League, you know, CYO to D1, um, even FIBA. So I do imagine there are some people out there who aren't too familiar with you. If you could just take a little bit of time to tell us your background, your officiating career, you know, your your journey. We want to hear the Ronnie Nunn story. Um, I think the audience would get a lot of value out of hearing your wisdom. So, uh, Mr. Nunn, I'm all ears. Thank you, Paul. I'll make it short. Listen, I've been, uh, athletics has been a part of my life. It's been coupled with education. The education was obviously forced upon me by good parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I did the education to play ball, so to speak. And growing up in Brooklyn, um, you know, there was always a, a feel for, for playing sports, following sports. And of course, for me, baseball was first and then basketball came later. Um, when basketball did come, uh, you know, I came out of junior high and went to Brooklyn Tech, which gave me an opportunity to play hoops, but also gave me a, a great education. You know, I have three uh, very modest college degrees, but my high school diploma from Brooklyn Tech is probably the greatest piece of paper that I have for all that that school did for me, uh, which was not my local high school. But uh, I kept up 
uh, hanging on with some brilliant students of all ethnicities and realized, uh, you know, how profound people uh, really had in smarts. And by keeping up with them, it's like hanging out with people who know more than you, you learn more as well. So I credit the school and the student body and the teachers to help me through that. But that also got me to receive a lot more scholarships because I was uh, capable with the decent SATs and, and, and decent averages to be a scholarship guy that, you know, had a uh, hundred plus schools wow. to decide on, you know, where to go. And that was also coupled with having a great All-American backcourt partner by the name of Charlie Davis, who went on to Wake Forest University, uh, recruited by uh, Billy Packer, who became mm -hmm. a, a major sports commentator. A lot of people don't realize that he was the assistant coach at Wake and wanted Charlie Davis to get there. So Charlie brought me 50 of those scholarships for sure. And... Um, and then from that point on, going on to GW, uh, my high school coach, Shelly Snyder, said, you know, there's a lot of places out there that want you, but GW wants you more than anyone, and you should consider it. Uh, they also talked about uh, graduation, where uh, I might be included in a five-year program if I stayed on campus and worked to complete a degree. Well, I didn't have to do that. Uh, th that, that was good, but it, it was something no one else had offered. Uh, it wasn't an illegal thing. It was a matter of how they could help me uh, work as well as uh, be part of studentship so I can get the, uh, get the, get the degree that I, you know, I was there for. Uh, I didn't need that, but it was a wonderful thing. And GW was a great place. It was cosmopolitan. Which and conference were they in at the time? At the time they were in the Southern Conference. Okay. To credit the student body, the overwhelming majority of the student body was from the Northeast, Massachusetts, New York, uh, New Jersey, Philadelphia, and uh, the student body was the one that, that elected to get us out of the Southern Conference. We didn't have that many students from Virginia, Maryland, and further on down in the South. So uh, we moved from there to the Eastern Conference Athletic Conference, which was the ECAC of old. Which, which by the way, I still have no idea what that means, by the way, ECAC, because yeah, it's so ECAC, broad. Yeah, well... The ECAC was before the Big East, the Atlantic 10, uh, and some of the other conferences that they have currently out there. That was a culmination of independent schools that belonged to this conference that had to reach up to 75 or 80, and maybe even to 100 schools. I mean, Notre Dame, for example, was in the ECAC. Every Northeast basic region school in the Northeast corridor, so to speak, not so much the South was part of this conference. And of course, there was the great um, uh, NIT that took in a lot of those schools down the stretch and schools from elsewhere. So the NIT at that time was a bigger postseason uh, tournament than the actual NCAA. I, I, obviously, for money and things of that nature, the ECAC broke up into these various conferences, which were you know, uh, more probably money and, and, and marketing better for for schools, and uh, then it, you know it brought out the Big East under the leadership of Dave Gavitt, and brought out the Atlantic Ten, which uh, I certainly didn't play in at that time. But th th those, that's how those that the ECAC broke up. The ECAC is still in, in uh, together, but it functions more with Division Three schools. And I had an opportunity to do its sports program for one season 
uh, after my NBA career to be part of the administration of all officiating. That took about 17 sports. And trust me, I learned a lot about ping pong as well as wrestling when it came to officiating. But it, we all fall in the same kind of funneled location when it comes to officiating. So I learned a lot, stayed the year, and uh, decided to, uh, to to move on from that and do some more international ball. But before that, I mean, I, my, my basketball time at GW was great. Uh, we didn't win as well as I would have liked to have. Uh, but, but, it, but it was a great experience for uh, socializing as well as academics as well as uh, basketball. And uh, a couple of key people got hurt in my era, and that's what kept us from being more notable. But there were some good players recruited there. But uh, after that point, I went on to play at Mexico. Uh, Mexico was close by in those days for guards. If you, you weren't really needed overseas, they were looking for big men. So you I went, was, I'm sorry, you went to play in a professional league in Mexico? Yes, I okay. went to play in the, the Circuito Nacional de Basketball, or the NBC, National Basketball Circuit of Mexico. And uh, one of the reasons why I elected to really go there uh, be, beside the fact that bigs were looked at for Europe um, was, was that it was close to the U.S. And I still had, you know, these uh, these feelings of wanting to be an NBA player somehow. But I did very well down there. It actually uh, made my game much better as a guard, both as a point guard and a two guard. And, and something I didn't get in college, I got on this wonderful team. Uh, so I learned a lot. At, but the problem was I ended up getting ill. And uh, it, that short-circuited my second season, but uh, gave me an opportunity to be at a couple of camps um, with the Knicks as well as the Denver Rockets of the ABA, where I really did well. But again, illness from that uh, original illness got worse, and I had to really stop playing basketball. So all of that is done, but uh, the bottom line is I took a rest for about three years, thankful that I was alive. I mean that sincerely. And then I started uh, playing ball again just locally in the New York Pro-Am just to see if my body could take it. And that's when I uh, in interacted with the great Cecil Watkins, who was the assistant supervisor of officials of the NBA. And that's when he said to me, why are you playing? And I had been playing that time, obviously, to, to see if I could. But during that time, I was a special ed teacher administrator and uh, very happy to be the assistant basketball coach at Pace. So I really didn't know where my future was going to go. Was I going to go to coaching more? Was I going to continue in education, teaching, and, and taking on those roles? And, uh, and when, when Watkins said, uh, how about considering the MBA for officiating? I, I, I said, absolutely, unequivocally, no. <laughs> I, I don't want to be bothered with the MBA. I almost died trying to get there. You've been a player your whole life. You were a baller. Yeah, I was a baller, man. And, I, you know, officiating uh, basically doesn't come to us as easily. And, and, and also, you know, moving on to coaching, it's not a natural transition. And, of course, if you break it up into a triangle, the most remote angle of that triangle is officiating. No one ever gets to that little, that little angle up there in the corner. So he had told me about that. I said, absolutely not, but thank you. He said, well, look, we're, we're looking for former players uh, that might consider doing this. So obviously I wasn't interested and it took three years, but in those three years, I got healthier. My body reacted well to sports again. I wasn't having any issues uh, with kidneys or liver and anything like that. So uh, I was feeling better. And finally in the third year, he kept pushing at me again 
And I said, how could I ever be an NBA official? I don't know anything really about it. I mean, you know, I know about the Mendy Rudolphs, the Richie Powers, and people of the older era that we watched in, in basketball. He said, look, you have no bad habits. If you have talent, we can teach you. And it was the first time that I said, well, maybe there's something to this. And also, I had finished all my paperwork. I mean, I had a master's degree. I had my six-year administrative degree for administration in school. So I said, look, if I venture off into this, at least if I'm aiming for the stars, I can fall back maybe uh, on the moon mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and, and continue a life just in case I don't deal with this. So I went home, talked about it with family, and we did it. So at 30 years old, I started officiating in the Pro-Am, which Cecil Watkins said to me, this league that you're playing in has nothing to do with, you know, you playing ball. It has to do with these guys refing. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, this, this league was always for referees, transitioning college guys and newcomers into wanting to be an NBA referee. And henceforth, that was my thing. At 30 years old, I started with him. I started with high school and, of course, adjunct those games with the Pro-Am. Uh, and then two years later, got a tryout with the NBA, ref NBA referee camp in L.A. And two more years after that, after being in the CBA at the time, the Continental Basketball Association, uh, I, got, I got appointed to the NBA staff. Somebody threw me a number 34. I didn't know if I liked it on my shirt. <laughs> and my wife said, by the way, you're 34 years old. Why don't you just oh, keep the number? Perfect. That's the story. I hope it wasn't too long. Oh, no, that's great. So this gentleman was just there every summer observing other officials, right? And he just kept watching you play and then started to recruit you and you built a relationship with him. Yes. And we had some very talented people who were pursuing the same goals as I did. Um, the training, I, I, I am a firm believer, not because I'm an educator uh, and, and a coach during my time, but um, I, I'm telling you that training and mentoring uh, is a key piece to success in anything you do. I don't care if you're laying cable, if you're, you know, you're, you're climbing mountains to do something, whatever industry you're in, if you have an excellent mentor who knows the business of the work included, that's where you launch and get ahead of the pack of other people. And here in New York, the New York Pro-Am was that type of organization and had that type of leadership. And to Cecil Watkins' credit, because there was a need to get referees, he established a pro-am league in every NBA city at that time. And I think at that time we had 24 cities. So every city had an NBA pro-am. It had modified NBA rules, mechanics. So you actually began to do the NBA style game. And, um, and then, you know, obviously uh, try to build your, your abilities up based on that launching pad. So when you have a talent like Ronnie, I think it's important to stay out of his way and continue to let him do his thing. So that's exactly what we're going to do. Mr. Nunn, what else do you have, sir? Yeah, two years in the Pro-Am. Then for the first tryout, I got, I got in in two years of the minor league of the CBA. Uh, you know, and, and, and that's how it worked. And I want to tell you something. Because I wanted to move quickly, um, after the first year in the Pro-Am, I, I was bugging Cecil to see, can, can I go to the tryout? And he said, you're not ready. And I couldn't figure out, you know, why I wasn't. And I, and I think in officiating, sometimes we all think we're better than we are. And maybe in playing and in other 
you know, things that we do. We think we're better than we are, but when we put trust in people, we, we should put trust in, um, it, it works out. And, and I, I, I bowed out and I said, geez, you know, should I quit? And he said, no, you shouldn't quit. You're just not ready. And uh, I think that's a very important thing. So I worked at it, followed the critiques I was getting. I was not ashamed or embarrassed about being critiqued. I was naive, uh, as naive as can be in the game. So I was a sponge. And in those two years, followed by the two years later that I was accepted into the CBA, obviously 34 years old, 30 to 34, I made it in the NBA because of excellent mentorship, not because I was some uh, child prodigy or anything. The guidance I received really worked. And I had talent, apparently, but training is what saved me. A lot of people have talent, but if you don't have the proper training, you can't succeed. Absolutely. I tell people all the time, find a mentor and a coach that's passionate about helping you. Because there's a lot of guys that'll just help you and come give you some feedback. But find the guy or the girl who absolutely loves it and is very passionate about, about teaching. And I think you'll be able to find the most benefit from those type of uh, mentors. Yes, and I, and I would add only... Uh... And this is, is this the piece that confuses a lot of up-and-coming officials is, one, having too many mentors, and two, uh, listening to too many philosophies. And uh, a lot of the veteran people have older philosophies that they hold on to. They share that with younger people. And, and in today's game, uh, some of those older philosophies do not apply. So officials get themselves spinning their wheels in the mud and they get confused and it's almost too much on them to kind of differentiate and discern what is appropriate, what isn't, what is by rule, what is by interpretation, uh, you know, what is the way in which to make calls as accurately as possible, whether you put air in a whistle or not. So you have to be careful about having too many people and you have to be wise about selecting the one or two that can really help you uh, learn and the other is selecting, for example, certain camps to attend to that move you forward, not politically, but, uh, but based on your, your abilities to do well. And I, I want to make sure that everyone knows that there is room for good officials. So they're always in need for good officials. And what happens is once you stay in the pack, it's hard to differentiate you. But once you get, become the leader of a pack, it's easy. And those kind of differentiations are very subtle. It's not like playing ball where guys say, geez, you know, this guy just scored 50 the other night. We need to have him on our team. I mean, basketball officiating is not about scoring those major plays in the game. It's the consistency of your work, the steadfastness, the subtlety, subtlety of your composure and your interactive ability with the people who you're servicing, which is players and coaches. Well, speaking about a camp, Ronnie, let's talk about your camp. The Nun Better Referee School is a referee program whose purpose is to identify, scout, and develop officials of all levels. And that includes analyzing the officiating commonalities found in high school, college, international, and pro basketball, while improving an official's decision-making in all facets of officiating. Now, Ronnie, I know you have two... Uh, an East Coast and a West Coast camp coming up? Why don't you tell me about them? Yeah, the, the West comes first over at... Uh... L.A., Northern L.A. in Panorama City. There's a wonderful tournament there with about 40 teams. Uh, that is the June 13th to June 16th affair. 
Um, we're still looking and have room for additional officials out west. And also we have one in the east. Uh, it's going to be this year at King of Prussia, which is a northern suburb of Philadelphia, about 15 minutes to 20 minutes uh, north of Philly. Uh, we've changed locations from our Hall of Fame one in Springfield, uh, where we started a couple of years back, uh, only because uh, there were some date conflicts with the level of, of basketball ability we want for our group. So we moved it to King of Prussia, and, uh, and that's on our website, nonebetterrefs.com. Uh, capital's not necessary, just nonebetterrefs.com. It will give you some information. And, and basically, I think I funnel back to my greatest strengths of all the officiating I've done and the accomplishments that I have and to have done in that. The greatest was really my work when I was a director because that got me back to coaching and teaching. And this is primarily an instructional teaching camp, though we have contacts and visitors that are looking to see people. So we, we want to make everyone very effective at the level that they're working at currently and at the level that they can officiate at, we want to improve that level. So whether a guy is a JV official, we want to improve him so he makes an impact and a candidate, strong candidate for varsity high school. And the same on the way up from varsity high school onto championship levels of that level to stepping into college uh, officiating from division three and then to division one, as well as those that have uh, pro orientations in their mind and want to pursue that as well. So we have a lot of tentacles out to, uh, to make contacts for people on their abilities, especially in their growth and development. And, and that's mainly what it is. I'm a product of that type of conditioning, although I didn't do college, uh, but I know what works because it worked for me. And I just consider myself average, maybe average plus, but certainly uh, no one special. Again, teaching, instruction, and mentoring. And people have to decide what camp they are best uh, going to be educated on. And, and that's key. It's not the auditioning. You can go out and audition for camps, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to be part of that roster. But trust me, uh, you may just stay on the roster and never get hardly a game. You want to make an impact. What's going to make you stand out in a subtle way to prove that you're more than just someone that went to a camp? So if you're auditioning for a camp, you want to be more ready than others instead of just auditioning. I really like that camp model, making it all inclusive for all levels, not really specifying, all right, this is a you know Division two men's tryout. You're keeping it open, so that's going to increase um, – the different number or different kinds of officials that are going to come to your camp, all, all different types from high school, college, aspiring pro international. So that's great. Yeah, it really, it, it's a, it is great because a good official is noticed at every one of those levels, by the way, and that's how they launch forward. I'm sending somebody to your camp. I, unfortunately I can't make uh, those dates, but I will be sending uh, my good friend and partner, Matt Pink. If that's okay. If you have a spot left. That's good to hear. Uh, which one would he be attending? Uh, the East Coast one. Wonderful. We got some time because that's uh, July, uh, I want to say July 18th to the 21st, 18, 19, 20, 21. Yes, in King of Prussia. So to all audience members, if you do go to Ronnie's camp, you will get to meet the famous uh, Mr. Pink. So oh, very good, good. good opportunity. Yeah. Very good. 
And let me just say to you, Coach, anytime you want to come doing the work that you, you're doing, anytime you want to come and get polished in some areas that I don't know about or something you're thinking about, you're on scholarship. Uh-oh. So just you're on scholarship. <laughs> I like the way that sounds. I never got a scholarship when I played. I had to pay. Well, in this situation, you know, I'm very proud of you for what you're doing. Uh, you know, so getting the tent out, you know, you know, in not only nationally, but internationally. I know how much work it takes to do what you're doing, uh, even though I'm doing so such a microcosm of it as at a camp. But for you to broadcast things that get out so far, I know the work it entails. Uh, and, and the part that you love so much is the officiating piece. So anytime you elect to uh, find time to come, uh, get yourself uh, over to us, we'd love to have you. And second is, yes, you are on scholarship. Wow. Well, book it. I'm, I'm there. Okay. I'm 100%. Okay. Whenever. As long as uh, we have it, you are welcome. Again, I'm proud of all your your ongoing accomplishments and uh, your energy and your gen generosity as well as your genuineness and what you're doing. Well, that means so much coming from you, Ronnie, honestly, um, to, you know, yourself, such an icon actually in our industry and to have a great career on the court that you had is one thing. And that's amazing. But I see the work you're doing off the court. You're putting out content too. I see you're on Twitter answering questions for fans I know, I know you're on YouTube doing a little series. Um, so I see you out there. So, I, I mean, I'm, I'm aspiring to do what you do. So to have you, you know, compliment what we have going on is a great honor for sure. Yeah, B-Ball Breakdown uh, is the uh, program I work with with Coach Nick. Uh, we deal with controversial calls. It really comes from fans and decisions. But uh, uh, Nick does a great job on B-Ball Breakdown. He breaks down plays. And uh, things, uh, I mean, he's his own ESPN show in a way. Tremendous background and knowledge in coaching. And he embraces uh, the knowledge that he wants to have concerning officiating. He's been kind to uh, uh, get hold of me and embrace me with this. And it's just wonderful information to go out. It really reminds me a lot of the TV show I did at NBA TV with Making the Call with Ronnie Nunn. So, you know, education uh, and knowledge uh, just... Uh, reduces prejudice, discrimination, slants, and whatever else have you. When, you. when you're knowledgeable about something, you know what the truth is, and we try to provide that. And I know some of it is my opinion on things. It's worthy of a discussion, and I'm open to anybody. And that's what we do on Twitter as well. Actually, what I do on the, at None Better Refs on Twitter. So uh, it's just a, a accumulation of knowledge that I care to share because so much was given to me in knowledge that it moved me forward never in my mind did I think to pursue an NBA career as a referee never and I don't think many people think about pursuing officiating so I think your program opens that net to consider officiating as one of the options after playing whether you never played but love the game it's just one of those uh, adjuncts to being part of the game Hey, I never thought I'd be podcasting, you know, like right. we never know what tomorrow's going to bring. Just try to keep evolving. Ever had to struggle with keeping your uniform tucked while you're on the court? 
Are you constantly retucking your shirt every time you run from trail to lead? Well, we have the perfect solution to keep you looking professional while you serve the game. Neat Tucks. Neat Tucks is the world's number one way to keep your jersey or shirt tucked. Neat Tucks were designed to fit comfortably. They're adjustable and they attach and detach with the click of a button. You can get them on fast and you can get them off even faster without having to undo the clips from your uniform or dress shirt. Neat Tucks are currently available in the flat buckle or the active style, which has a thick buckle. Neat Tucks is currently being worn by officials in the NBA, the WNBA, FIBA, and Division One. Ladies and gentlemen, it's short season, but more importantly, it's camp season. So it's time to look your absolute best as you're applying and auditioning for a job. Mike Ori, the creator and owner, is such a big supporter of Crown Refs that he's offering a 20% discount on all orders. Go to neattux.com and enter Crown Refs at checkout to receive 20% off your next order. Neat Tux and Crown Refs, serving the game. I got to ask an MJ question because he's my favorite player of all time. How is it reffing the GOAT? You know, geez, uh, you know, he's just a an iconic player that has all the skills uh, that you need to become, you know, tremendous. I mean, his ability to shoot, his ability to uh, clear himself to shoot, uh, his ability to take it to the hoop. I mean, he's a combination of like a Jerry West shooter, uh, a driving Julius a- Irving, a, um, a focused guy in scoring, like, for example, like a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Where, I mean, wherever a person like this goes. He took some Iceman's moves too, no? Yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, this game is a mimicking game. So, you know, basketball is a great mimicking game. And by the way, that's for coaches and players alike. And refs they copy, too. The, you know, it's, it's, it's the case concept, you know, a copy and steal everything. Just so, like we, we steal mechanics from refs that we like and think are good. Yeah, exactly. And presentations of those signals, of course. So it, it, it's just part of the game. And, um, you know, Michael is great. But you know what? I'm old enough to have seen, uh, though I couldn't absorb it all because you're younger. But, you know, I saw the great Oscar Robertson. I, I see a lot of, you know, LeBron with an Oscar Robertson. I see Michael with a partial, uh, you know, Jerry West. I see... Um, you know, I don't see Earl Monroe, who was a real magical phenom player, in Michael. He's, I see more Walt Frazier, you know, for example, in him. But, uh, you know, there are players that just are amazing to me. Uh, it, it, you know, Kareem was one, being a New Yorker and watching him. And then, of course, uh, you know, Julius was another. It was a funny story where, you know, I had played against Julius in college, UMass, GW, doubleheader in the garden, and we lost 72-71. Hmm. Uh, Rick Pitino was on that team as wow. well. And, uh, you know, to go out 10 years, or I don't know, yeah, about 10 years, no, more than 10 years later, 12 years later. Yeah. And uh, and as he's coming to center court, he looks at me, and I extend my hand, and he says, is that you, Ronnie? I said, yeah, Jules. I said, what's going on? He said, God, I didn't know you refereed. I said, who knew? Who what, what a moment that must have been. Yeah, that was that was a great moment. That is awesome. And by, and by the way, you know, when you're a, a junior official on the staff or a first year guy, whatever have you, I mean, it was just clear that when somebody would turn around and be disagreeable with me, uh, Julius would just say, "Hey, hey, hey, I'll I, I take care of that, Ronnie. Don't pay any attention to that guy. We'll <laughs> take care of that." So, you know, I, I think the life I had in basketball, especially amongst the coaches, I was a known entity. 
and that did help me. But it won't save you unless you can referee. So, uh, so th- th- that's a very important piece. But yeah, that that was one of the things that happened uh, in, in this officiating life. Mm. And how and how was Michael? Was he respectful with you? Always respectful, and and uh, I don't hold that only with me. He he was respectful with 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 all of us. Um, you know, he he got upset sometimes, but he never came out of the box with being upset. And I liken him a lot to uh, LeBron. I know he's had his moments uh, of late or at times, but very very few and far between. Um, because I think these guys see the big picture, and also they carry the big picture. I mean, they are the icon of the era, and uh, and they carry themselves uh, very well. So. Um, you know, Michael was, was, was just wonderful. And, uh, and I wasn't always right. I mean, and to add to that, uh, people should know that some of the best players are the ones that don't get the fouls. They often deserve, they are so strong and capable of converting whatever they do, whether it's rebounding, whether it's driving to the hoop, whether it's scoring, uh, the contacts that they receive sometimes where other players wouldn't be able to play through it. It is hard sometimes to discern whether the contact was something that would throw a, this, this player off. And, and the great players play through stuff that makes it look easier. And when they whip around and look at you and say, Ronnie, I got hit on that play. You, you, you go, you know, geez, you know, I, I don't want to miss one for him, but I don't want to make one up for him that he doesn't deserve. And when you go back and you look at it, you go, you know, that's a foul. You know, Shaquille cannot be hit like that and think it's it's not, uh, you know, an impacting contact. So, you know, you have to be aware of, uh, of of giving those players what they deserve. The the opposite of what people think that they get plays that they don't deserve. So the bottom line is uh, they they don't get what they deserve more often than they get what they deserve because of their greatness. The evolution of NBA rules has been real fascinating. Um, And I think it's totally shaped the game as we know it now in the nineties, when I was growing up, it seemed like there was so much more contact allowed. That was legal hand checks, arm bars, two hands, you know, it was much more physically aggressive. Now I know in 1999, I did a little research. One of the rule changes um, was in the backcourt. There's no more contact allowed with the hands or forearms. And that's the same in the front court, except with the exception of below the free throw line. So I think that was a pretty significant rule change. Could you talk about what it was like for you and other officials during that time when the game was going through such a transformation? Well, that's a good question. Uh, when I came in, um, the physicality was obvious, but accepted as part of the game. For example, uh, if a cutter came down and a big man would slough off, he would chuck the cutter, let's say, with a forearm, and then go back to his, for example, I'm making it up, his low post assignment. So things like chucks like that or hand checks on the perimeter those hand checks used to be very, very strong and defining. As a matter of fact, I remember in my tryout days uh, with the Knicks, you know, and, and, with the, and with the Rockets, you know, a stiff arm hand check by a six, five and a half guard named Walt Frazier <laughs> to a guy who doesn't have his talent 
Ronnie Nunn, who really, really, uh, you know, deterred me from getting to where I wanted to go. And all I wanted to do was start the offense. So, so it's like, damn, if I ever want to score on this guy, it's going to really be a monster. So the game had been rolling along. And what happened was the Detroit Pistons end up winning the championship uh, because they were a very physical team. Pistons were a football team. Oh, oh, oh. You catch it Went right <laughs> over my head, Paul. Right over my head. So uh, you know, when 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 being, being a mimicking league for all the right reasons, I trust. You know, all of a sudden the Knicks come along too, and they become very physical. They've got Patrick, they've got Oakley, they've got Mason. Listen, Derek Harper is the greatest hand checker of all time. There you go. There you go. So what happened was the game began to have a certain stuntedness to it. Uh, along with isolations, you know, we, used, we everybody in New York, if you're any kind of player, know when you're going to have a clear out in isolation, you know, the guy is unstoppable. And that was a feature in a culture of the game that really, you know, was prominent and the focus was on people that could do that. I mean, it was, it was amazing. The only way you get the ball out of the guy's hand is to go double team him or something like that. Well, isolation rules even changed where you could only have the ball for five seconds and you had to give it up. So that all started to lead to that and the physicality of a game to non-fluid games. They look too stunted, too mm-hmm. physical. And the, the traditionalists in the right way looked at the game and said, you know, this is, you can call a foul anytime you want in the NBA. All you have to do is pop the whistle. So then all of a sudden there was kind of like, what is a foul? What isn't a foul? And this came from the fan base and from those that love the game. And henceforth, the fluidity of the game was needed, and this was called freedom of movement. So whether you had the ball or you were cutting off the ball, you had to make sure that you did not affect a player's rhythm, speed, balance, and quickness on his movement. If those were deterred or affected or rerouted or impeded, you had to make calls. And the game became easier to referee because harder for the players to transition but easier to referee because those calls were now going to be made. They became the new criteria. And by the way, today's refereeing is far easier than the days in which this other programming was involved. Today, it's a perimeter game. There's not a lot of low post work. And in the games where I came up, there was a lot of low post work. And you had to learn how to referee in the post and decide what was a back down that was dislodging, for example, and what was a back down where the defender was giving giving way to an offensive player. So those extra, you know, things that go into the equation make any equation, whether in the classroom or on the court, much harder to evaluate to get a to get a equal answer. So uh, you know, today it's easier, then it was much more difficult. But the game moved on and and I would agree that the game is better overall. And now I think, really, that the game is looking like the old ABA game. The ABA game, uh, which created the three-point line, of course, the red, white, and blue ball, uh, some of the dunks and breakaways, that was some of the ABA's culture. It is now kind of creeping into the NBA's game. And you know what's going to happen? Everything is cyclical. There is nothing new under the sun. And so I think you're going to see more defensive-minded people to stop these three-point shots and sometimes, you know, these 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 shots for call for shot selectivity don't make the game look that good. 
looks like it's just running up and down. I even heard some people say it looks a little AAU-ish. So the NBA doesn't want any that of that kind of game. They want to market their game in, 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 the, in the way in which it's most enthusiastic as well as most, uh, I want to say, uh, effective for the game or detailed in the, in the value of the game of basketball. Yeah, like you said, everything is cyclical. We learn uh, the future by looking at uh, the past sometimes. So yeah, you never know when things are going to come back around full circle. And they will. Yep. Bell bottoms were gone. Straight legs are in. Trust me, bell bottoms are coming back. They're coming back. <laughs> Did you uh, rep in the NBA when it was still two two person crews? Yes, I joined uh, the two person crew from '84 when I was appointed to '89 when the three person was enacted. '89 must have felt great. Like, wow, we got an extra guy out here. This is great. Well, it, it, it did. There were two reasons. Uh, one, people believed that the third referee was needed. Uh, but credit Daryl Garrison, one of my, uh, you know, mentors, my major mentor in, in the NBA when I got there. I have this uh, speech I give on my five mentors. He was the fifth. And when I got there, uh, I mean, I was a two-person referee at that time known as the two-man. The two-man was the real um, workman's game for an official. You had to learn how to do the NBA two-man. And I think we've lost some of it because uh, the NBA two-man had a lot of uh, – had both officials on the same side of the court at times, uh, you know, uh, on the rotations by the lead. I think the the two-man has been forgotten uh, because the two-man is still part of the three-person mechanic. And it's not used as effectively, and hence, fourth, the uh, the call calling accuracy has gone down because I don't think they knew know how to use strong side officiating as well. But anyway, yes, uh, it was the two man. I was part of that. It made you very aware of all the center slash slot calls as a trail and as a lead. Uh, it, it really made you have to work that side of the court that had nobody there to police it. So you, know, you became you know, better. Of course, when the three person came, I was the one that was kind of myself and others wondering, what do I do over here? What am I looking for over here? And, uh, you know, it, it, it crept down to, you know, three or four plays only. And now, you know, there's obviously nine or 10 plays because I do have a system, what I call nuns nine that happened. These are nine, uh, contact plays that happen at each position they just give a different look depending on the positions you are so in in the slaughter center you have nine specific plays that you have to adjust your mechanics for to see those plays and uh and the same plays occur at the trail and the same play occurs at the lead so so uh, sorry to cut you off if you're if you're refereeing a game right now a two-person game and you're the lead you're gonna rotate over strong side and have two officials on the strong side yes that, that'll happen now in the in the original two-person mechanic the lead would never go to the side of where the ball was in the nba they were the first to for example if the ball is in the trail and you're on your left side and your lead is on the angle opposite the other side of the basket he now would come over to that side of the basket and stay on the same side with you as a trail and of course, that that when that was first initiated, obviously, like everything else, it was new and it was not accepted. For example, college didn't do anything like that. But the NBA was the first to take a lead and bring him to follow the ball 
in the lead. In other words, whatever side the basket, the ball was on, that lead would go to that side. Now, that's not the same for trail. The trail would always stay to the left, but he would finally get off the sideline more onto the court because when your lead came over, you, you know, you were responsible uh, primarily as a trail for things that did happen on the weak side or the slot or the slot or center side. So uh, some of those same things occur today, but they're not in, inserted as they should be because the two person mechanic has never left uh, the system. Thanks to Daryl Garrison's insertion of it. And uh, I tried to progressively move along those lines when I was a director. Gotcha. I, I know in my experience, I've only rotated over a couple, couple times in a two person. It just never felt comfortable in me. I always, I always feel like I don't have an open look on the weak side. So I, let's say I rotate all the way over to like three point line, three point line something happens on the weak side of the court over by, you know, foul line extended by the three point line. Like whose primary is that? Do we have an open look at that? Well, remember that when you rotate, you rotate really to where the ball is. For example, if the ball is at the top of the key, when you rotate, cause you see a post up or, or initial pass to the wing, you kind of mirror the ball, but not in all cases. So if a pass is to the wing and now you're going to rotate over because the ball is now on the opposite side of you, you, you may go up to the three-foot posted-up mark. Um, you may go a little bit further. If the ball obviously goes to, to a three-point line, you, you've got to get that because that's a shot. But at the same time, your trail has readjusted his or her position and moves onto the court and back to cover weak side plays. For example, cuts to the post, cuts down the line. Uh, you know, you're on ball from the free throw line and down in the in the NBA mechanic. Um, so, you, you know, you're really on ball from all that stuff that's in front of you. And I'm off the ball on all the stuff that's coming to you because you're on the ball. So it's just opposite. If one is on the ball, the other is off the ball. But I have found that uh, in working both, because I had a little high school experience, I found that the pro uh, system was very, very effective. And your trail becomes very, very, very active. Uh, the other is uh, your trail is not as active. And, uh, of course, when three-person three came in, uh, our, our trails today, if you look in a lot of places, college and uh, pro and internationally, they don't stay as active if they're not on the court when they should be. They are a key position in basketball. And I often tell people at camp, if your two partners in the three-person or your one partner in the two-person went down, what position do you think you would take to carry on that game? You know, having the fact that you're not going to get a replacement. And some people forget that they'll say the lead, they'll say the center, or slot. And I say, no, the, the position that you're going to carry that game on is the trail. Because the trail has the highest perspective and angle and panoramic view of everything that occurs in the game. Yeah, I mean, you can go down on some exceptions for a throw-in on the baseline. But somewhere along the line, you've got to get back out to the trail position. And the same on transition. You're going to referee most plays in the transition from, you know, let's say 28-foot mark or top of the key to top of the key, getting out of the way of the players and seeing the game. We don't take advantage of our trails today on those panoramic views. They don't no, they no longer have them. They hug the sideline and they are a missed missing in action person 
for plays that are needed at the group. Thank you so much for listening to part one of the Ronnie Nunn interview. Be sure to check out part two. It's the podcast that follows this one. Have a good one.